Hello, everybody. What we're planning to do is that each of us will speak for roughly 12 minutes, and then we will perhaps try to draw together some of the ideas that have come out of what we've said, and we will open it up to questions and um, perhaps answers, or more questions. But I go first, then Sarah, and, and, and then Drummond. Um, I'm an academic, so the approach I will take will be to some extent to be looking at um, how this subject is addressed from the aspect of the academy. Print takes many different forms. I briefly considered bringing along to this seminar all the printed junk mail that came through my letterbox in the last week, or all the different printed drafts of an article I recently published in an online journal. 1850 to 1970 was roughly the great age of mass printing and the institutions of print in the West, of newspapers, books, and public libraries, and of wide general reading of printed matter. But writers then wrote fewer drafts, and though advertising boomed, it did not intrude on a daily basis through every letterbox, and most private houses contained by volume less print than today. My own area of expertise is historical print and high-end print literature, which has never represented more than a small percentage of printed matter. But much of our current digital anxiety accrues around this kind of print. What I have to say has to do with print in its historical perspective and also with the ways in which a shift from print to digital is affecting how we preserve and interact with our literary culture. I'm a reader by profession. That's what I do for a living. I'm also by profession a text curator or editor. Both aspects of my professional life are being reconfigured by the shift from print. Just a few general points first, three points. First of all, things are complicated. Print is supported by digital technology. That is, the technology that delivers the traditional paper book or newspaper is now and has been for a significant length of time from start to finish, usually electronic, until the very last step when it's printed out. At the same time, the second best way to preserve digital data is by backing up in lots of places, and the very best way to preserve digital data is by printing it. <laughs> so digital supports print and print supports digital. That's the first point. Second point is, after heady initial experiments in the late 1980s and the 1990s with highly inventive forms of poetry and fiction hypertext. Digital technologies over the last 20 years have regressed to focus on the electronic simulation of previous print forms and high among them old books. As the French poet and thinker Paul Valéry observed, we enter the future backwards. The point is not technology-specific or media-specific. It implies something about the human imagination. We work from what we know. If the printed word is dead, we are still living with its ghosts. The digital is in many ways print's ghostly other. And my third general point is that we live in an age of complex remediation. Remediation is both homage to the past and efficient recycling. 
The last time we in the West saw a level of this kind, such a level of media anxiety, was in association with the rise of mass printing itself during the early 19th century. At that technological moment, when print ceased to be a privilege of the few, nostalgia focused upon the technologies of manuscript circulation and oral performance, symbols of a threatened world of closed, select communication which only then, only as late as 1800, and print had been invented in 1450, only 350 years later, only then did it seem in jeopardy from the multiplying forces of print. Artists like William Wordsworth, Samuel Taylor Coleridge, and William Blake responded by fetishizing the older technologies. Wordsworth and Coleridge deferred print publication by circulating huge numbers of manuscript drafts of their writings. Blake hijacked, hijacked the reproductive powers of print technology to make individually customized artifacts, turning the printing press against itself. For Wordsworth, the very idea of a mass readership, a mass reading public, was profoundly unsettling. With print as opposed to manuscript circulation, the author could no longer control who read his works, or how. Fast forward 200 years to today, and we're equally nostalgic for print, for the materiality of that same mass print-delivered literary culture. Our current fascination with the materiality and history of the book is a function of digital culture, just as Wordsworth's manuscript obsession was shaped by the onset of mass printing. We're always in the position described by the German comic Karl Valentin when he said, in the past, even the future looked better. <laughs> you need to think about that one. How is the shift from print to digital affecting the way we interact with our literary heritage? In one sense, the atomization of texts into information records within relational databases interrogated by powerful search engines appears to liberate text from its printed body. The institutions of print and later those of broadcast media like radio and television once shared a common goal to shape collective opinion. By contrast, a prime characteristic of electronic text and of general media remediation appears to be to deny their common status as public objects. Now we can and do customize all our media. As scholars, we can enter rich electronic archives of great literature from which each reader can select their individually tailored edition or reading text, annotated and illustrated in the way they want. My Shakespeare, my Jane Austen. We can invite others into this personal universe by writing blogs, but it remains our universe. Common ground, and I'm not talking about truth or accuracy here, accuracy here so much as breadth of perspective. Common ground is signalled by a shared newspaper or a TV show watched at the same time by millions or the expertly stabilised single text of a printed scholarly edition is threatened with erosion. In all of this, we're still curiously print-obsessed. There's huge cultural investment in digitising our old print heritage. Online catalogues are now the norm. So too are vast text repositories. Ebo, Echo, that's early English books online, and Echo is um, 18th century collections online. And above all, 
Google Books. With astonishing speed in the matter of a decade, we've shifted the library from a physical space to a virtual environment and from local institutional support provided by human experts to the internet and a search engine. It is, however, not the book, but the newspaper, print's dominant mass form for around 200 years, and now itself in decline, that currently shapes much of print's electronic remediation. Mass digital initiatives, funded and wrapped round by online advertising, are recasting old books as, as it were, digital newspapers. But here's an interesting thing. Newsprint was and is everywhere. At the same time, it was and is ephemeral. In recasting the book, a robust technology as the newspaper, we're wittingly or not using the new technology to reprioritize, to revalue our literary relations. And that's important within the academy. Conversely, digitization has brought back to life much dead print, historic newspapers, for example. The great swathes of Victorian newsprint, unread for over a century and now available online, are reordering the priorities of many graduate students in my subject, English. Students who would rather search through the social ephemera of the past than engage in reading canonical works of literature. It's now easier and more seductive to write a thesis on, for example, the occasional political poems by shoemakers in Norwich printed in the Chartist Press between 1835 and 1842 than a study of George Eliot's contribution to the realist novel. What does this say about how we are interacting with and carrying forward our textual heritage? Just two final points. One has to do with critical thinking. As users, we're only just beginning to register the place of critical thinking in the context of search-derived information or knowledge. We're only just beginning to assess technological innovation in terms of the value of the ends to which it is a useful means. No one is born a reader. Reading is not a natural activity. It's learned, it's adaptive, and it's a function of the means of delivery. But we also knit it into our identities. Our patterns of reading, not just what we read, but how we read, inform us. As cognitive neuroscientists are beginning to suggest, reading rearranges the organization of our brains. We can expect that the circuits and pathways that the brain fashions as we use the internet, searching and skimming digital objects, will differ from those woven by the book-reading brain. How will we ensure that the machine processing of vast swathes of data and the screen absorption that substitutes for reading in digital space don't jeopardize the brain's reflective functions, functions that have emerged with deep reading? And if we lose those reflective functions, at what likely cost? What will replace them? Will we have handed over too much power to machines for the management of every aspect of our lives? And not only a shift of power from reflecting person to machine processing, but a loss of social consensus and shared belief. Will there still be such a thing in the future as a common reader? And my final point has to do with Google and things like Google. 
We need to be more suspicious, I think, of Google and those vast commerce-driven companies that build and oversee the digital resources we daily depend upon. We may be engaged online with a high-minded Renaissance tract on freedom of expression and the rights of the citizens, but at the very same time, our identities are being mapped and represented to us as consumer choices through cookies. Much more data is being stored about each one of us than we can even begin to imagine. As for the quality of the digital texts we use daily, the Academy, people like me, has been so little involved so far in their development that our power to intervene in the very areas for which we are trained is seriously compromised. This is a big problem and it's growing bigger. I'll hand over now to Sarah Lloyd. Hi, everyone. So um, I was asked to come, thank you very much for um, inviting me, to answer the question, is the printed word dead? Um, and I'm delighted to let you know that the answer to the question is no. <laughs> the end. No. Um, <laughs> it's not dead. It's alive. Um, but I think the question really is how hard it's kicking. And the answer to that is that it's kicking more vigorously in some areas than in others. Um, at the very high level, it has more life, for example, left in it currently in consumer publishing, where I work, than it does in academic and especially STM research publishing, where there's a clear understood value in the digital functionality that print simply can't bring. So, for example, searching, um, bilateral linking, citation linking, article collections, academic social networks, and so on and so forth. And that's driving very, very fast the transformation to digital. So in STM publishing uh, for Macmillan, it represents about 80% of our revenues, the digital proportion uh, of our publishing. And it's about 60% plus and rising in um, humanities and social sciences. And actually, in, in terms of use, it's even higher percentages than that. But wherever you look, the physical format is certainly not thriving, um, at least in the way we have experienced it previously. So in my world, which is consumer book publishing, uh, we publish authors such as Julia Donaldson, Judy Bloom, Rod Campbell, Cormac McCarthy, John Ronson, Geoffrey Archer, who was mentioned earlier, Andrew Marr, Carolan Duffy, uh, David Baldacci, just to name a few. The market for our breed of books, um, especially in the UK, US and Australia, and increasingly in other regions, is certainly not dead, but it is declining. So I'm going to give you a few stats as I go through the presentation. I hope you can cope with all the numbers, because I, I can't. Um, but looking at UK consumer sales data, which is taken from a company called Nielsen Bookscan, who measure all the sales through the till, so that sales out, not sales into the bookshops, the overall market has declined in round terms in the UK, um, about 22% by volume and about 19% by value over the last five years. Now, what's causing this? Um, I think many people imagine that it is about ebooks, um, and ebooks are certainly part of the picture, and I will talk about that quickly now. Ebooks make about 25% um, by volume of the overall consumer market, again according to Nielsen, and much of this is cannibalistic of print share. 
But that's not the whole picture. So that's 25% of the whole market, which includes all sorts of publishing, including children's book publishing. In certain genre, and this is where it becomes very interesting, they make up about 50 to 60% of, uh, of sales. So, for example, in particular, crime thriller, romance, and science fiction are very, very highly digital uh, already. And there's also a growing market of self-published digital books and even digital-only publishing, um, including uh, new publishers who've come and become digital-only from the get-go, but also digital-only lists coming from the mainstream publishing houses. So we have one uh, called Bello, which publishes a mix of um, previously out-of-print books that we've brought back to market through digital-only formats, which sort of alludes to some of the things you were saying. Um, but in the consumer market, I think what's interesting is that choosing an e-book or a printed book is actually not a binary choice. What we're finding is that many readers who've invested in um, a digital reading device and who are buying e-books and reading e-books still buy and consume print. So a recent Pew Internet survey, this is US data, but it actually reflects my instincts and the information I have about the UK market, showed that 52% of readers um, read exclusively in print. Now, that's a pretty decent proportion, but it's clearly a massive decrease from 2008, when in 2008, I imagine that figure would have been about 100%, because it, before 2008, there were no mass-market e-readers to buy. Um, on the flip side, it's not all bad news if you're, if you're a lover of print, only 4% read exclusively ebooks, And that's despite this huge take-up of digital reading devices and, of course, all the other smart connected devices which are capable of providing an e-reading experience. And if you add to that a tiny 2% of people who only ever uh, read or listen to audiobooks, that means that actually a significant 42% of readers are reading across formats. So what's going on? What it means is that we're living in a mixed-media environment, I mean, which we all, I presume, recognise, in which we choose our media and our media format depending on the situation, the time of day, the time of year, and how we feel. Um, I'm going to do a little survey now. I hope that's OK. Um, I'd like to know how many of you in the audience actually own an e-book reader or a device capable of reading digital books. Can you put your hands nice and high up for me? Great, that's quite a lot. That might be 50% of the audience, I think. Um, could you keep your hands up? I do apologise. Could you um, only put your hand down if you never read printed books anymore? Oh, a couple, three. Now, that's really to illustrate the point I'm about to make. So if you read, if you, you can put your hands down now. <laughs> um, if you own a Kindle or a Kobo or an iPad or a Nook, if we think about our own lives, we probably recognise the idea of using our e-book reader on the commute or for a holiday where we want to carry lots of books. Um, but we may very well also buy a hardback of an author we particularly love or a topic we feel passionate about because we might think it's particularly covetable physically. We just we like the look and feel of that particular uh, edition. Or we just like the idea of owning it, touching it, seeing it on our shelves. In the consumer context, what we're finding is that certain types of book are still uh, stronger in physical book uh, market terms than others. And isn't it interesting that it's the more mass market adult genre which are moving to digital the fastest? So it's the crime thriller, it's the romance. 
they are increasingly digital. So the literary, the higher-end uh, fiction, as well as some forms of non-fiction, illustrated books, children's books, are still relatively strong in physical. I do say relatively um, advisedly, but the children's books are really interested. They're, they're the real winner, I would say, in physical book terms. Some more stats. Um, according to Nielsen, physical book data for the UK market, picture books, children's picture work books, are worth £28 million in the UK, and that's up 10% this year over last year. Children's fiction is worth 44 million, and that's up 3% uh, over last year. That's very much driven by David Walliam's books and the Wimpy Kid books, which some of you may recognise. Uh, young adult fiction is worth 18 million and up 23% on last year. So we think the, the, the book market's dying, but that's growing. That's driven by Divergent because of the films, showing how other media can fuel physical uh, book sales. By contrast, all genres in adult fiction are down, and the worst hit are the ones that are very successful in ebook, and that's women's fiction and science fiction, which are down 27% and 18% respectively. Okay. So what's going on? What's, what's this thing about different genre, different types of books, and the relative weights of digital to physical? What's, what's going on there across different genre? I think there's three things. I think the first thing is the relative importance of the words versus the story. The second thing, I think, is the relative importance across these different genres um, of the concepts of ownership and endurance versus something virtual. And lastly, the, the most difficult to measure one, the relative emotional values um, applied to each by readers across the different genres. And there's especially a sort of um, relative inability of digital to appeal to parents, which is going on, which I'll talk about a little bit. There's also some boring technical reasons why picture books and illustrated books are not yet translating to digital, and that's to do with the lack of a single standardised format uh, to reproduce effectively those kinds of books, those illustrated books, across a variety of different uh, proprietary platforms. But I'm going to take these points in turn. <clears throat> First of all, words versus story. Digital reading appears to be adopted faster on books where plot and story is the key driver. And we skip through the pages merrily as the book sort of melts away into the background. The story is all that matters. For those more literary texts where thoughtfulness, pondering, lingering over the language, the words themselves are paramount, um, the fact of ownership of a passion for literature is key. Somehow the physical book is still appealing more. The format perhaps remaining something of the pleasure of the experience and the easy ability to flip back a few pages to reread a certain phrase is actually still monumentally simpler in print than in digital. Second point, the, um, the point about ownership versus transience. Digital does seem to appeal much more for the quick hit, the mass market beach read that we might formerly have picked up as a paperback and we may not necessarily keep and treasure for the long term, might pass it on or leave it on a tube seed. Physical books do still have a few distinctive characteristics that are yet to be replicated, let alone improved upon by digital. The ability to be wrapped up and given as a gift, the ability to be held, the ability to be passed on or loaned to a friend, the ability to leave it to someone in a will, the ability to be placed upon physical shelves, 
to provide a bookish ambience, an intellect, some intellectual wallpaper, or even, actually, if you've looked at uh, lots of things going around the internet, lots of pictures going around the internet recently, de a decorative feature. So, in fact, just as the physical book market has started to teeter, in part driven by the transformation towards e-reading, particularly in certain genre, we have seen the physical book getting bookier in order to maintain its status. Hardbacks and books intended for the gift market especially are being given higher and higher production values, more and more special finishes, casings, ribbons, printed end papers, and so on. In other words, the ob objectification of books is getting more intense to counterbalance the convenience and portability of digital and answer this desire for ownership and intellectual wallpaper, as I said, a beautiful object to gift, hold, and endure. And I've got some books here, which I'm going to hold up and, and get you to pass around, actually. Um, the first one... Oh, I need to stay here, don't I? The first one is... Um, this is a new book that we're just publishing now by Jane Green. It's called Saving Grace. It's a hardback. You will be able to buy it in the supermarket. So it's not really a high-end book in that way. You'll see the beautiful paper it's printed on, the, the um, spot varnish, lovely coloured end papers, beautiful paper quality. There's something else special about this book, which I'll see if you can work out as you pass it round. Would you mind? Thank you. And there's a couple more here. I've got this one. This is um, a book for young readers, sort of 9 to 12. It's a hardback again. It's only, she says, 14.99. No, it's only 10.99. It's a bargain. <laughs> um, so you can see I'm in marketing. Um, spot varnishes again. And can you see the little peephole? the boy's hat, and then the printed end papers behind. Thirdly, I've got Night School by Richard Wiseman, which is a sort of pop psychology title. Again, with a cut-through front, the lovely coloured end papers, and a belly band. This is called a belly band. That's the official name for that. So do pass them around, have a look, and feel, and you'll see what I'm talking about. The third um, point I raised was this thing about emotional value. And this is very difficult to measure, but it's, uh, there's undoubtedly a certain resilience in printed books based on emotional value. This is most evident in kids' books. And again, a few internet surveys showed that over 9 in 10 parents said it was important to them that their kids read printed books. 81% said it was very important. And 81% also believed that printed books were better for the purposes of shared reading with a child. Now, the irony of this is that the parents who were interviewed for this particular survey uh, were high digital readers themselves and ebook readers. So that's a snapshot about digital reading. But there are other things that are uh, creating a pressure on, on, uh, on the book market, and that's other media in general and the way we live now. So the constant beeping and blinking of text messages, tweets, Facebook posts, Instagram photos, Buzzfeed listicles, the online news update that's sort of 24 seven. And I'll just uh, finish with a few um, stats on this as well. The Wall Street's journal, um, Hawking Index, showed that many bestsellers have never finished. Some 98.5% may have finished The Goldfinch, but only 6.6% of people have ever finished A Brief History of Time. I don't find that surprising. <laughs> and 12.3% only got to the end of Lean In. What's happening? The modern response is not to do less, but to do more things at the same time. The blurring of work and leisure, leisure as we call it, is one of the main culprits, along with media multitasking, which has now gone mainstream. Did you know that more than half of UK adults media multitask while they're watching TV, the second screen? That's from Ofcom. 
This is terrifying. Consumers check their smartphones about 150 times a day, on average. I know some people that double that. I'm not one of them. A 2014 Nielsen survey found that consumers spend 65% more time using apps than they did two years ago, an average 30 hours a month. And these are all things that are taking up the space where reading happened. So my personal view is to be less concerned about whether print is dead and more concerned about whether long-form reading and the space to reflect and think and talk is going seriously out of fashion in favour of more short-form, viral, evolving media. And my personal and professional ambition is to keep books and reading in whatever formats readers want them at the centre of mainstream conversation, at the centre of our educational lives and our ent and entertainment lives. But taking advantage of digital formats, the channels, the platforms, and bringing the physical worlds and the digital worlds together and the, you know, the best of both. A final thought. Um, trends are not constant. If we look to other media, we can see a bounce back or a pendulum swing that takes place even as technology moves us on. For example, the rise in high-end stationery or the small bounce we're seeing in vinyl sales with even teenagers going back to vinyl. So I don't have a crystal ball and I don't want to predict what's going to happen. I might, I might be happy to tell you what I think is going to happen in three years later, afterwards. <laughs> but not 50 to 100, certainly. But I think, it will be here, I think print will be here for a long time, probably several decades at least. And I think that it will be part of an ever-shifting picture in which I hope that authors, readers, publishers, booksellers, all of us can continue to ad adapt and embrace the new forms as part of that picture, whatever shape they take. Thank you. I'm now going to hand over to Drummond. So the first thing that came to my mind when I started thinking about whether or not the printed book is dead was the bring out your dead scene in Monty Python's Holy Grail movie. You remember Eric Idle is, is the guy who collects dead people. John Cleese is trying to give him his dad. Of course, poor old dad is still alive. He's claiming, I'm not dead, I'm getting better. <laughs> I feel happy, I think I'll go for a walk. <laughs> John Cleese says, you're not feeling anyone. Eric Idle says, I can't take him like this. It's against regulation. And John Cleese says, is there anything you can do? Come on, help me out. Of course, poor old dad gets clobbered on the head and taken away. This isn't a perfect parable or allegory at all for the publishing industry and what's happening with books. But it struck me because, you know, the poor old dad, he's not the most assertive man in the world. And obviously the people around him will obviously profit from his death. But he's not actually dead. That's the key thing. So that's Monty Python. What about print books? Um, I don't repeat too much of what Sarah said, so I'll just agree with her very much that genre makes a massive difference. Geography makes a huge difference on whether you go with print or ebook. Here, as we said, it's about 25%. US is similar. But in France, for example, no one reads ebooks. I mean, if you talk to a French editor, I've had conversations with them where they, they generally can't believe. I mean, they think you're joking when you say you read on a Kindle or an iPad. So you know, where, where you're talking about makes a big difference. Age makes a big difference as well. Some surprising results here. A lot of people might assume that it's older people who prefer print and younger who prefer digital. That's not really the case in a lot of, a lot, a lot of the time. A lot of surveys show that it's older people who prefer the advantages of e-reading. A survey by Voxburner at the end of last year, for example, showed that nearly two-thirds of 16 to 24-year-olds, so very much the digital young generation, 
prefer printed books to e-books and far more prefer the physical equivalents in film that, that, than prefer the physical equivalents of film, newspapers and magazines, CDs and games. I don't know if you've seen that there's a very funny YouTube video um, which is a one-year-old baby playing with an iPad, swiping an iPad, and then they give it a magazine and it's trying to swipe the magazine it doesn't, it, and it just gives up in frustration and kind of goes away. And the caption is, you know, a, a magazine is an iPad that doesn't work. So, I personally don't agree with this. I was reading a book to my six-month-old baby the other day, and a big picture book, and at one point it looked like he was reaching to turn the page. He was trying to eat it. So, <laughs> so don't base too much of the future of reading on what one-year-olds do. A um, little bit about authors and readers. Um, I mean, if you ask authors, is a printed book dead? They, they, they say definitely not. There are some very successful self-published authors, obviously, and we'll talk about that in a bit in a minute. But uh, you know, the majority appear to want their books in print. So authors are really the most important people, along with readers, in the whole book publishing literary drama. They seem to not think it's dead. Uh, and lastly, a little bit about readers. Five years ago, less than half of readers who took part in the bookseller magazine's annual digital census, that's the UK magazine, said they had ever read a book digitally. That's five years ago, less than half. Last year, the figure was close to 90%. So we've gone from half to 90% who have read it. In terms of who have bought a book, it's quite similar. Five years ago, it was about a fifth of people. Last year, it was three quarters. So you know, readers clearly love e-books, and I'll, there's lots of reasons why. But curiously, they seem quite reluctant to let the physical book die as well, despite what we might have predicted until quite recently. Um, E-book growth initially was mind-boggling. I'm thinking about kind of five years ago here. Uh, largely off the back of early adopters of Amazon's hugely popular Kindle and then various tablet devices. And looking at the numbers a few years ago, you'd be forgiven. I mean, I thought this. You'd be forgiven for thinking it truly was over for the printed word because the growth was just spectacular. However, the growth of readers reading an e-book is now starting to plateau. It's still growing, but it's not growing at anything like the rate it was. We hit 25% in the market very quickly, but it doesn't look like that proportion of readers who only who read on e-books exclusively is really going to go much higher. Each year in the digital census, readers are asked if e-book sales will reach 50% by 2020, and each year fewer and fewer of them think that that will actually happen. Last week's non-fiction bestseller lists are also worth a mention at this point. Uh, both hardback and paperback number ones in the UK bestseller list last week in the Sunday Times began life online. They were internet sensations. Much of the content in each of these books is freely available online, but there's clearly an appetite for the content in physical printed form. So much so that they could go to the, the, the very top of the charts in their first week of release. So why is this? And how are readers affected? The research that's been done in this I haven't looked at all of it, but the, one, the research I've looked at broadly gives a slight edge to reading print in terms of the experience you get from it. A recent report from Norway, for example, said that reading print is better for comprehension than reading digital. But for me, as both a reader and an editor and a publisher, the most important thing isn't really comprehension, it's immersion and attention. Ebooks have loads of advantages. You can hyperlink, there are dictionaries in them, so if you don't know a word, you can just check what it is. You can copy and paste notes. They're cheaper, they're easier. There's no paper, you can carry loads of them around at once, you can change the text size, you can search in them. They are fantastically convenient, providing you can find a device that you like. 
I mean, I, I used to stuff my backpack every night full of hundreds of pages of printed manuscripts and cycle home wobbly, get home and then sit on my couch and read them. Now I just email them to myself and I read them on a tablet and it's fantastic. So they are fantastically convenient. But often when things become easier, they become more disposable. Look at music. You used to have to listen to the whole of a record. Then with cassettes, you could fast forward, but it was a bit of a faff. With CDs, you could skip tracks. With MP3s, you can skip tracks across albums. But the result, even though we, we all love music, we all listen to lots of music, the result really is that we often don't bother listening to the end of the song we've chosen, specifically the song that we've chosen to listen to before skipping on to the next song. So this kind of digital easiness conflicts in a way with the idea of being immersed in something, reading that takes time. The best reading has always been active reading, when you're in control, going at your own pace, in a receptive, attentive state. But sometimes digital reading encourages us to be distracted and distractible. Even if you're reading on a Kindle, which just offers books and magazines rather than a tablet that offers the infinite depths of the, of the internet, digital text naturally leads you elsewhere. It's connective. That, that's what's good about it. A physical book, by contrast, is restrictive. It's limiting. It, it's somehow lumbered compared to the fizzing possibilities of digital reading. But some people like that, diehard readers in particular. It's somehow calming, stilling, to have just one option, to experience something that, contrary to most experiences we have day to day, requires, say, 20 hours of sustained, if not continuous, absorption. But then the other side of this, and Sarah touched on this, and this might be something we agree on, it might be something we disagree on. I think she's probably right, though, actually. <laughs> um, when you're reading digitally, I think the format raises the bar in, in the sense of the story, the prose, the argument, whatever the salient feature of the thing you're reading. It needs to be that bit more transformative or distinctive or persuasive, just a bit better if it's going to hold your attention. And it's hard to argue with something that encourages, even if indirectly, better writing, better stories, and better reading. So why does all this matter? Um, I'm not going to talk too much about publishing. There's lots of issues that publishers find fascinating about this. Royalties, discoverability, commissioning, marketplace. I'm going to talk a little bit about readers, though, specifically how it affects readers and our role in that. Because as readers, you have more choice than ever. Books are cheaper than ever. You can read them more quickly than ever. There are more of them than ever. But what I'd say about publishers is that we can help you navigate this. Now, as well as finding the right books, working with authors to make them the best they can be, and getting attention for them, the traditional role of a publisher, our role more than ever is to curate, to save you, the reader, time. Would you, would you prefer, for example, to just have an Excel spreadsheet of 150,000 titles to choose from? And as self-publishing becomes easier by the day, I'd argue that just as readers need us to help create the best books, then help them to find the best books, authors need us. Because as well as paying advances, we can provide loads of services that are just as relevant for e-books as for physical. It's a kind of equivalent to what Catherine said about the fact that you know, the vast majority of the work that goes into a book, even an e-book, is still physical. It's still done by people and by physical things. I mean, we all worried at first when e-books became very big that authors would follow what I call the Radiohead in Rainbows model. This is an album they released for free directly to people you know, to your man in the street about seven or eight years ago. And the whole thing was that because they're famous, you know, they're, they're a massive band, they can afford to do that. Why do authors need us once they've got famous? You know, once someone is an established author, why do they need a publisher anymore? 
But all I'd say about that is that if you look at what authors are actually doing, the trend has been the opposite. Self-published authors migrating to traditional publishers rather than the other way around. And that, more than anything I can say, that's what authors are saying, and that says more than anything about why we still need publishers. So just a couple of parting final thoughts. Uh, in terms of the question, I think print will stay around as long as enough people have an interest in it doing so. So publishers who want to appeal to 75% of readers, authors who want to see their book in print, which largely, and until recently, doesn't really happen with, uh, with self-publishing. Uh, readers who value physical object, as we talked about before, and booksellers, for obvious reasons. Uh, E-books, self-publishing, the changing retail environment, etc. They all change the rules of the game. The game, as it were, will continue. And just one final thing, for me as both an editor and a reader, the way I think about ebooks is they're just another format. Fundamentally, it's about the words, it's about the stories, it's about the argument, it's about the imagination of the author. Despite the changes and the challenges facing publishing around the world, what hasn't changed is the sheer resilience of the human imagination. Occasionally at work, I'll fall in love with a book that I've read, I'll spend a fortnight in an auction for it, I'll meet the author, I'll do a pitch, I'll do absolutely everything I can, which sometimes takes slightly odd forms, only to, to lose that book to another publisher. Someone else pays more money or they prefer another publisher and you lose the book. It's devastating when this happens, when you discover something, you fall in love with it, and some other guy gets to publish it. But we just carry on. Because no matter how scary things look, it goes without saying that writers will always write, words will always have the power to transport us, and the imagination will always need an outlet and to find an audience. Providing we can help authors find the audience and readers, the actual format people are using somehow doesn't seem all that important anymore. Thanks. I might just open it up at once, really, because we, we all ran over a wee bit um, to, um, to questions. But first of all, perhaps just to summarise a few things that we've said. Um, it does seem that perhaps in the academic world, print is most under threat. And I find that very interesting because I am trained to be a professional reader. Um, so, so that's one issue we might discuss. Um, Sarah suggested that e-books are 50 to 60% of sales in the popular end of the market, crime fiction, romantic fiction, science fiction. Whereas interestingly, children's books and high-end literary books, books where more reflection perhaps is required in the reading process and where we may want to turn backwards and forwards, there is still a, a preference for, for print. Interestingly too, younger readers may prefer print. As we get older we may venture towards the Kindle. And, and then the issue that I think Drummond was bringing up towards the end, and it's one that a few years ago was a burning issue may publishers be dead, never mind the printed word, but may publishers be dead. And the interesting fact that, in fact, where self-publishing was offered as, 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 as a, an enticing opportunity a few years ago, many writers are still preferring, and many who self-published in the past are now preferring, to move to migrate to publishers 